History session 24, Rabbi Blyweiss, the nation has been split in half. Um, done in, and we were talking about Yeruvam ben Nevat, this man of immense promise and greatness in Tyra, who was undone by his power lust, has done some despicable and uh, terribly, terribly damaging acts. He's led the insurrection, the civil war that's led the nine and a half tribes to the north. He's put up guards along the border so that people can't leave the north and go south to Yerushalayim for it to be Ola Regel. Um, and finally, we said yesterday, he built these two golden calves, not initially as idolatry, but as another alternate center for the people to rally around. And that's the, um, and that's we find ourselves, and I left a bit of a cliffhanger yesterday. Two golden calves. Two golden calves. Pretty, pretty shocking. Now. How did he get away with it? And the question that I left us with, I don't know if you know this, you thought about it overnight. How, we're talking about a period which we can't really fully understand. We're talking about a prophetic period when the knowledge of the Kaddish Baruch Hu was iridescent. You, 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 you felt a connection with the Shem unlike anything that we have today. Today we're walking zombies. We're, we're walking as if in a fog, in a daze, vaguely aware of a, of a profound spiritual something out there, but back in the day of prophecy, it wasn't just the prophets who were much more spiritual. I mean, if you were a prophet, you were a mouthpiece to Kaddish Baruch Hu himself. So the, the Nevi'im, which we'll talk about today, were on an unbelievably high level of existence. But even the common folk were also on a very, very exalted level of existence. There was, for example, no machlokus in the world. Do you know that? The entire pre-Second Temple period for, of Jewish history, there was no machlokus, logically and, and, and obviously. There was no minag, um, Sephardi minag and Ashkenazi minag. There wasn't even a Beis Shammai, Beis Hillel. Everything was uniform. How and why? Well, logically, you had a Navi. You had millions of Naviim. All you needed to do was consult with them. And you had, as it were, the Word of God. So there was clarity. You knew exactly what the halachas were when you woke up in the morning. You knew how to keep kosher. You know how to keep Shabbos. It was all there. And the people wanted to, and they were connected. And we've said this before. When they stumbled into a Vodazara, which is not yet real Vodazara, it's the old exaggerated, like they shouldn't have done this, and Hashem is being very particular because he expects more from people who are on this high level. When they did what was wrong, they did it partly for the right reasons, that if they're zeal to serve Hashem, and usually because of some baser motive that led them astray, but not because they were totally off. There were no reformed Jews back in the day. And that's going to come. That's around the corner, sectarianism. But there's no sectarianism. Everybody knows there's one way to be. There's a Torah approach. I, I don't always live up to it, but that doesn't make it any less emistic. Uh I don't remember who was first. Jacob. The people who could not go to the basement, they The entire north. You still have, some of you still have the maps there. Right, the entire north, the dark, the darkened section there couldn't go down to the base of Mikdash. Were they not permitted to Right, then you don't, you can't. The only place, you remember this, we just talked about this, the only place where you're permitted to offer korbanos is in the base of Mikdash. Outside, they're called, and it's not the American president per se, they're called bamos, right? Um, and, uh, and, and they're not allowed to do that. The same way that we can't, Right, same prohibition. It's a Torah prohibition. Uh, okay. Daniel? It wasn't the identical mistake. It wasn't the identical, mis the identical mistake. So, so far, so far, the only one I've addressed that has this mistake is Yeruvam. Yeruvam, like some smart people, has it all worked out. He feels ideologically justified in his rebellion. He thinks Rehavim's a Russia. He's persuaded himself of that. It, you know, sometimes the more you know, the worse it is for you. He's, worked, he's, he's basically built an entire sugya of Torah around this, that he's the better alternative to the corrupt house of David, and he's going to lead the Jews to... Because a person, in, in this case, in his power lust, you start with your conclusion, I'm the man, and you work backwards to justify that. And that's the way most people are in life. They want their lifestyle, they want what they're going to do, and then they find a religious worldview that reflects that most conveniently. That's what your is doing. The question that I posed yesterday that I'm building to right now is, what was going on with the rest of the people, and especially the leaders, the prophets, no less than who's the greatest prophet? I mentioned him several times yesterday of this particular time in this particular area. It was your own Chavrusa. Do you remember his name? 
Achia Hashiloni. Achia from Shiloh. What's going on with him? And here's how the Gemara in Sanhedrin explains it. Yeravim was devious. And he was devious and he would have claimed if you were to go back and, and, and you know, if we could have a private audience, I'd love to have a party, private audience with some of these people in retrospect historically and say, Yeravim, what were you thinking? And he would have justified, he said, no, no, I was the man, it was okay, it was devious, L'shem Shemaim. He gathered all of his advisors together. He arranged them in such a way and there were some bad eggs in the mix. And he had some, he had some people to cooperate with him, the lower dregs of the nation. And he, he, and he had some tzaddikim among his advisors. So he carefully planted a Russia next to every tzaddik. He went Russia tzaddik, Russia tzaddik, Russia tzaddik. And then he said, then he, and he had them interspersed. And he asked them a series of questions. And he said, he said, um, would you sign, I'm the king, you've appointed me as the new king of Israel. That's what they call the northern kingdom of Israel. Would you, of course, as king, would you support any uh, decision that I made? And I said, well, of course, you're the king. He then pushed it one step further. He said, well, would you sign any document that I would put in front of this? Well, you, you know, you're the king. What are you supposed to do? And of course, the tzaddikim were egged on, were goaded on by the rishayim that were sitting immediately to their, to their side. Um, he said, well, now, how far does that go? I'm the king, so I'm authority. Would that work even if I told you to serve a vodazara? Pretty intense. And without thinking, every tzaddik blurted out, chas, chas, chas v'sholom. God forbid, they said. But the Russia sitting was cued and ready to go. The Russia sitting to his side said, do you think a great man like Yeruvim would actually serve a Vodazar? And what he saw, he never really served idolatry. He said, they can't be. What is he doing then? And they, just, they talked it through. He's testing the faithful. He's not really, he nobody believes he's really asking for a vote. Sorry, he just wants to see how far your loyalty extends. And with this, with this setup, they're all persuaded to say, ah, I see, I'm really dedicated to the king, and they all are persuaded to sign. And once they sign, the Gemara makes it clear there's no point that they could retract their signature. And based on this agreement, the Agolim are built. Now, there's commentary on this Gemara. How do we meant to understand it? What they're saying, what, what really the meta statement the Gemara is making is that this is an impossible thing to understand. How could these people fall for it? It must have been some super duper conspiracy to literally pull the wool over their eyes and somehow that's how Yeruvim got away with it. Among those tzaddikim was Achia Hashiloni himself. And pay attention to this in a, in a, in a, in a few days from now. We're going to see how this spins out of control. A few generations from now, a great man by the name of Yehu is going to is going to stumble on this. He's going to find the exact documents that's signed by all these great men, including Achia, and he's going to decide based on this not to destroy the Agolim. Those two golden calves will remain a a, feature, a fixture of the northern kingdom for the entire period of the northern kingdom up in Don and down in Beitel, they're there and even somebody like Yehu who was basically a good guy, flawed but, but decent fellow who comes along doesn't get rid of the Agalim because he says well, you know, Achia signed it so it must be okay, far be it for me I can't second guess him hold the thought for a second, I'm just going to finish the, 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 the one piece uh, are you not allowed to second guess them? Or are you, Right, not to the king and not to, but you know, we have this, we do have a Masaira, we have an authority structure. You assume that if somebody like Achia was behind it, it must be because he knew better. There must have been some exception. Um, I'm going to give you another explanation, a, a, a broader explanation. Um, by the way, that's, that's what I just said was one view. I, I will bring another view. The Yad Ramah, one of the Rishonim, the Yad Ramah explains the Gemara and says, he believes it's inconceivable that Achia could have possibly signed this document. He said, he explains it this way. He said, what Achia signed on and what he thought he was signing on was ge general support for the king. Um, the problem was um, he, he neglected to write a little asterisk next to his signature and say, by the way, this is just a show of support for the king. Nothing to do with his policies. And then later generations simply misunderstood this. How could this happen? Something of such obvious and great distortion. How could it happen? I, I would assert to you that there are aspects of our own lives that are so obvious and obviously and clearly wrong, hypocritical, mistaken, and yet somehow we have this, in, in, in psychological terms, they call it cognitive dissonance. 
somehow we get so used to it. It's like the emperor's new clothes. If you remember the old fable, the emperor's new clothes. It just is, oh, yeah, right, this is the way it is. I mean, I'll give an example since we just brought it up in, the, in my Shmoo session. If anybody was there a couple days ago on Sunday morning, the whole, the whole misunderstanding about Nagia nowadays. I mean, Nagia, I established that as an Isidir Isa. A man can't touch a girl. Period. There's no discussion. It's not a Chumrah. So then why does such a large faction within the so-called Orthodox community consider that, oh, it's some kind of mayashari, crazed, antiquated Chumrah not to hug and kiss a girl. Everybody can hug and kiss. It's totally more to hug and kiss a girl. Where did that come from? It's, it's like the elephant in the room. People just think it's fine, and then it becomes naturally fine. Or women with their modesty, or the relative immodesty, women who consider themselves orthodox again, but they go explicitly against the halachic code of dress by leaving their hair uncovered or by exposing their knees or elbows or, or necklines and such. As many so-called orthodox women, sometimes wives of, wives of great rabbis, dress inappropriately. And it's another elephant in the room that gets so normal because so many people are doing it, and you look to the tzaddik over there and he's signing the piece of paper, so you sign the piece of paper. So it's interesting about human, about human nature. Again, we learn history as Musr here. We should catch ourselves. Every generation has its egregious flaws, has its obvious flaws that become so much the emperor's clothes that we don't, no longer even notice them. And we should notice them and try to distance ourselves from them. As one of my rabbis used to say, there's plenty of room for everybody in Gehenna. Just because everybody's doing it doesn't make it correct. Are you? Um, people in the previous generations are and these people, I already argued, they're on a very exalted level, no question. And yet, even they're even they are human and subject to these kinds of mistakes. Well, nonetheless, if they were that much higher, I mean, looking at 500 years ago, the kind of uh, great, great mind that were around then. For sure. The result was around 500 years ago. That's right. As was the Mahabra. Exactly. So all these great people were only 500 years ago. This is significantly farther back. Right. So they're at an so incredibly exalted level. level. So, so what are you getting be able at? To catch that. You'd think. And yet, since Gan Eden, we're, we've been flawed. We've been on an unbelievably high level. Remember, we even had a hard time reimagining what was it to live in, in Shlomo's days, which were, which were um, for the most part, undiluted greatness. And that was hard for us to even fathom because we have very little in our vocabulary that can conjure that up. Uh, and so too here, on a very high level. But notice that Tanakh highlights the faults of these earlier generations. This is how they blew it, and the Navi needs to, Who's the Navi who's talking here, Sefer Malachim, who said the other day? Who writes Sefer Malachim? Yirmiyahu. Yirmiyahu's got, a, got, a, got an agenda, as everybody has an agenda. He's not just writing Stam Sukim. He wants to teach his generation and all subsequent generations, this is what you shouldn't do. And that's why a lot of it includes the negative as a way of highlighting, this is what went wrong, a lot went right, and when it went, right, when it went well, I don't have to elaborate on that. That was very good. I need to highlight the tochacha, the, the rebuke. This, is, this was the egregious error of not only Yeravam, but Yeravam's generation. Yeah. You know, like, especially yesterday, you keep on saying that all the things that went, went wrong, the planting the seeds for the destruction of the second phase. That's what the Chazal say. Everything we see, this is not just affecting their generation, but it has reverberations on future generations. There's the butterfly what, effect. What part planted the seeds for the destruction of the first phase? Good question. What planted the seeds of the destruction of the Chorban Bayis Rishon? See, Shlomo anticipated the end from the very beginning, from the very outset. That's why he built those mechilos. That's why um, he knew that there'd be a need to, to... So how did Shlomo have that insight that this would not be the long-term greatest uh, final Besamikdash, final temple? Um, I'm not sure. I'm, and I imagine there's an answer to that. I'll leave it at that. I'll assert, but without having looked into it, I, 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 this is just an assertion, it's no more, um, that it was the chait of Adam Arishon. Meaning there was something so flawed in that initial sin that in order to fix it, it wouldn't be enough, even though it was a step in the right direction, it wouldn't be enough to build the base of Mikdash. As transformative an experience as that was, what we would need to be for a full tikkun ha'olam, for a full fixing of the world, would be something bigger and better. I don't know. That's what I'm saying. I'm, 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 I'm hypothesizing. Yeah. I have an answer. I, I Excellent. What do you have, Barak? Uh, it's from Megillah Rabbah. It's uh, the first chapter, first paragraph of Megillah Rabbah. They explain why the temple needs to be destroyed. The first temple was the Gilarabah. Go ahead. It was 
was actually based on this part where everybody was so covered in sin that Hashem again thought he just was going to destroy the Jews. But because the temple was set so At the time of Ahasuerus, are you referring to? Because you're saying Megillah? Because there was such a. That's true. There is no, a Gemara about that. that Ah, ah, oh, when I mentioned that. When yeah. Shlomo married Basparo, the seeds of destruction were already sown. Right. Is that uh, what you want to say? No, the first they said that, that, that he was going to destroy that whole thing. Yes, when he got instead, drunk on the wine. But instead he destroyed just the temple because the temple was such a holy figure. I think that's an answer, but I don't think that gets to the heart of Jake's question was when do we already see the seeds of that being sown long in advance? And I'm suggesting, and I think I'm onto something, but I need to work on it, and I need to look up, I need to find the right chazal to really for the guidance for it, and it's not on my fingertips. Um, I think it goes back to the chait, the original chait. But let's continue. Um, you have two divided monarchies, but not everybody is contented. This is a small footnote, but a significant one. Um, there were Jews from the north, including Kohanim and Levim, who were not satisfied remaining in the northern kingdom, and they did not stay foot. They did not stay stay still. They um, they moved and they returned to Yehuda to serve Hashem. There's a whole section of this in, in the eleventh chapter of the first book of Divrei uh, Yomim, and it's particular coming particularly coming from the tribe of of Levi. And in history, we notice these patterns. Why? Why should that not surprise us that it comes from Levi? Because they're the ones who serve the temple. More than that, why are they the ones that serve the temple? What does Moshe say by the Chaita Egel? Mi l'Hashem Elai. There's a, a popular song out now with that with that lyric. Mi l'Hashem Elai. Who for who is for Hashem? Come to me. And Levi consistently throughout history plays that role. And when they, they perceive a corruption within the northern kingdom, they gravitate correctly down to the south. There is, in the 13th chapter of Malachim, a very interesting little episode that I'm going to summarize. It involves a less-known prophet in the, in the times of millions of prophets. His name is Edo Hanavi. Anybody ever heard of Edo? He doesn't have a book. He didn't write a book in the Tanakh or anything like that. But his name, you've heard of him, are you? Yeah, Edo Hanavi. There's actually... Uh, I'm a tour guide. So uh, right down the street in that direction, um, there's this little alleyway uh, as you get, as you walk towards the old city called Ido Hanavi Street. So it's a, wow, well they have a street named after him. He must be significant. Uh, I wouldn't say that, but, uh, but he does have a street and he is referred to in the Pasuk as Ishalokim. Um, he apparently authored many Sfarim that were lost to us. Um, he may be the grandfather of a famous figure that we're gonna meet called Zachariah. And his mission, he sent up to Beit El, remember Beit El is the site of one of the two Agalim, he sent up to Beit El to rebuke Yeravam. I mean, you'd think at this point, any rebuke is kind of redundant, superfluous. Doesn't Yeravam know that he's going against the will of Hashem? But ostensibly not. Yeravam was probably so immersed in his own plans, his own designs, to, uh, to build an alternate monarchy that he needed some kind of rebuke and Ido was the man for the job. Aaron? Ido Hanavi. Jake? What was the reason Because if you didn't offer the people Jerusalem, you had to give them some kind of old-time religion. So short of an actual base of Mikdash, he needed some central, central rallying point and those he gave points, one up in Don and one down in Beitel. What seems so obviously wrong to us was the emperor's new clothes or the elephant in the room back to him. Yeah. That's how. That's what I'm asserting to you. So, so the man about these places, did he actually trade for the Initially, not. They used it as a point, a, a cathexis, something to rally around. But it was not. They were worshiping Hashem still. That's for sure. Nobody, no, no idolatry just yet. It'll become that, but not yet. So Ido goes up. Yeruvim is actually facilitating. He's standing by the mizbech. A very dramatic scene. He's standing by the altar, and Yeruvim predicts. He says that three hundred years from now, the entire kingdom that you built will be destroyed at the hands. He predicts of a future king of the south, Yoshiahu, one of the great kings. He says, he says, and if you want proof that what I'm saying is true, 
look, sir, at your hands. At which point, you're, and he predicts exactly what's going to happen, and he's right, because he's a prophet, they have that quality. Um, Yeravim looks at his hands, and his hands suddenly shrivel and dry up. He says, the Mizbeach will break, and immediately that altar breaks in half. The Deshen, all of the ashes will fall out, and indeed that exactly happens. Yeravim, before he thinks twice, says, kill that man. But then when suddenly he encounters these clearly miraculous events, he thinks twice about that. Um, at this point, Yeravim points accusingly at Edo. Um, up until this point, Hashem has not, has not, uh, has not condemned Yeravim personally. But when Yerav, excuse me, when Yeravim goes after his own prophet, Edo, Hashem is more makbid, is more careful with the honor of his prophet than he is with his own honor. And that's when Edo blasts Yeravim. And Yeravim's response now, realizing this is a true certifiable Navi of Hashem, is to try to win favor with the Navi. And he invites him, come Edo, I'm wrong, you're right, let me make amends, let me at least feed you and invite you for a full dinner in the king's palace. To which Edo doesn't bite the bait. He says, uh, no, thank you very much. I'm on uh, work time right now. This is, I'm on the job here. I punched the clock as my uh, Navi job permits. I'm not allowed to take time off to, make, to, to have dinner with the, uh, with the enemy, dining with the, uh, with the enemy. And he refuses the food and the drink that Yeravam offers. He leaves. It's a longer scene, I'm summarizing, but an old false prophet pursues Edo, smooth talks him, and says, you know, you can't go eat by the king, but by me, between what's it between one prophet and another? And he persuades Edo to come and eat with him, and he does. And um, the, you remember what happens? Yeah, he dies. How does he die? A very particular kind of a death. A lion comes, and, and savagely consumes Edo. Edo dies a very tragic death. And what's very striking is when they come and they find his carcass, the lion is standing there placidly next to the live donkey. Now it's the nature of a lion to kill such donkeys. But this was making a statement to everybody that this was not just the lion, this was a nace, this was coming from Hashem. But, but I mean, that was his job though, was, was to curse him and then leave. He was supposed to, he was supposed to curse him and leave and not to stay and eat dinner. Was Correct. That, was, was that a normal donkey? No, oh, oh, some say maybe it's the, the donkey. Remember, we, we've been following the donkey through history, so maybe that's the donkey. Some say that that false prophet was none other than Yohonasan himself. Yohonasan ben Gershom ben Menashe. Remember him? Yeah. Who is Menashe? Why is the Nun elevated over the Pasuk? Little, little safer team review? Moshe. Some say it was Moshe's grandson. Others say it was Micha, as, yeah, in, the, as in the pestle of Micha. Um, in the Gemara and Sanhedrin, it sells, it sells the most famous story about Yeravam ben Nevada as follows. Hashem himself comes to Yeravam and he says, Yeravam, Bobala. I'm sure he's saying the Yiddish, but I imagine it. I have a little fancy imagination. He says, Bobala, Yeravam. Let's say you, me, and Ben David, Ben Yishai, excuse me, Ben Yishai, that would be David himself, go for a stroll in Gan Eden. Now, I don't know about you, I would take up that kind of invitation, personally. What's that? Right, he's Right, but this is before that's true, before his feet is sealed, and he's going to Gehenna. So Hashem gives him a personal invitation, knowing the quality of this potential tzaddik, Yeravim, you, me, and David, Gan Eden, tomorrow, what do you say? And what do you say? Famous words. He says, I'm going to give you the Hebrew, because the Hebrew is so rich. The, the Gemara says it like this. Hashem says to him, Chazor v'cha v'ani v'ata u'venishai nelech bagan. Make tshuva, return to yourself, and you, and, and I, and you, and the son of Yishai will go, will walk together in the Gan. And Yeravam's response, infamous words, he says, Mi Barosh. Who walks first? Who gets to go first, Hashem? He said. And it's typical for our understanding of Yeravam, right? Isn't that just predictable? It's exactly Yeravam. Who gets to go first, me or David? And, 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 and Hashem says, Ben Yishai, the son of, of Jesse, goes first. And, and Yeravam responds, 
im kain ani lo ba. If that's the case, I'm not coming. And he forfeits his gan aiden for ain lo chelak for a faden gehenim. Yeah. I heard a rabbi that explained that actually he was supposed to walk first until he asked the question. Oh, Hashem would have done it. But when you seek glory, as the Mishnah Berakah Yavo says, misha rodef achrei kavod, somebody pursues honor, kavod. The honor, honor eludes him. It's how the statement read, me, you, and then, you. So it was going to be, he was going to walk before David. It's only, only when he asked, he no longer is worthy of it. Excellent insight. Excellent insight. Very important to this. Thank you, Barak. Um, you, why, why, would, why would Shlomo be in there? I mean, I don't know. Why, why wasn't anybody in that state? But why, why would you think Shlomo belongs? No, I'm saying that Shlomo already lost his... Uh, no, 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 no. We said he was... There was a Havamina. Maybe he wasn't getting a Lom Hava, but we... we no, but they said that... Maybe, uh, what, what was the statement? That he said, um, you... Me, you, and Benny Shai will walk in Ghanaian. We'll walk in the Ghan. Ah, okay. That's all. Who's Nothing Benny, to do with Shlomo. Who's Benny Shai? It's of Jesse. That's David. That's David Amela. David, David Benny Shai. Okay, but... Not Shlomo. But why not Shlomo? Why yes, Shlomo? No, Rechavim was king. Shlomo died. Remember, we're in the, right now. Your Rabbim's alive during Rechavim's period. I just would have thought it would say David Shlomo and. No, no, it doesn't say that. You're reading into it. Your has a son named Avia who falls sick. Um, your wife disguises herself. I guess she thinks that's going to help. Pretty, uh, pretty surprising. You She goes into the the Navi Achia. Uh, to try to find out what's going to be with her son. Um, Afia says, Oh, hi, Mrs. Yeravam. You really are foolish if you think you could disguise yourself before a prophet. They can kind of see through. So he recognizes her immediately. He says, Oh, yeah. Um, uh, no, the boy's not going to get well. In fact, he's going to die. And so is your husband and you and all your household. All, all going down. Sorry. Bad news. Bad news for you. Um, the Zohar comments about Avia, who doesn't play a significant role, but Avia, we see, is the last in the line of the kings um, in the north. Do you have your, you have your chart, Barak, Barak, you know what it has it? Aaron, you have it, right? So if you look at, you look at it, we have, we have in the north, you have Yeravam, you have his son named? Oh, Nadav. Nadav is coming next. Nadav is the next and last generation in that line. Avia indeed dies, but interesting about Avia, before, before we move on, the Zohar, right, the Zohar is a perush on the, on, on the Chumash, the Zohar comments that um, the day that Avia died, he had a son who's not named. That son was taken off to the desert with 170 men from Bnei Ephraim, from that tribe of Ephraim, uh, and he's raised there. And from this boy, the son of Mashiach ben Yosef will be born. And it's another area where we find in the middle of the iniquity that, that defined Yeravim's household. Yeravim is not a hero, to say the least. And yet from his child came another child who will be the ancestor of the Mashiach ben Yosef. When I say that, do you know what I mean about that? You know that we're supposed to have two messianic He's figures in the end of days. Mashiach ben Yosef, the descendant from Yosef at Tzadik, is going to be the harbinger of the final... Egg of the final redemption is going to fight spectacularly in battle, will die a terrible death, but in his death he'll pave the way, he'll lay the groundwork for the final Mashiach, Mashiach ben David, to final, finally come in. So apparently, according to the Zohar, that, that uh, Mashiach will descend from this, the same Avia ben Yeravam. So from, even though we find um, that in the man himself, there is virtue, there's something redeeming that a Kaddish Baruch who sees and finds in his seed, in his progeny. Jake and then Barak? Neither. It's, a, it's an unnamed boy. It's some, and, and then in the future, it's Mashiach ben Yosef, whoever the first, that is. is going to come before, it's true. He's also a harbinger, but he plays a separate, distinct role. They're all there. You got Mashiach ben Yosef, you got Eliyahu Nabi, you got El uh, Mashiach ben David, different functions. Barak and then Aaron? And right after Mashiach ben Yosef, uh, it's like your grandma after, right? Mashiach ben David. 
we'll get at the very end of the year, we will get to how the messianic figure will, un uh, that period will unfold. Aaron? Avia was the son of Yeravam, who doesn't have much of distinction, didn't do much, but ultimately will have a son who is the ancestor of Mashiach ben Yosef. Achia Hashilon. Ach, oh, I, their names are similar. That's why it's confusion. Achia is the prophet. Avia was the son. Meanwhile, down in the south, in the next few days, as we have the northern, northern kingdom and the southern kingdom that spans a good two, three hundred years of the first temple period. How long is the first temple period? Four hundred and thirty years. Almost, almost correct. Four hundred and ten years. Four hundred and ten years exactly. So for a good. Almost uh, over half of that period, uh, for the next period, the nation is split between the northern kingdom and the southern period, southern kingdom. Um, so we're going to be constantly going back and forth, talking about the significant events, not everything, but the significant events that transpire in both places. Meanwhile, down in the south, Rehavam ben Shlomo dies after serving as king for 17 years. So he's not around all that long. He's not that old a man when he dies. And it's precisely at this point in time that something that the Am Yisrael was li not living off of, they had plenty of other, um, uh, they had plenty of other sources of income, but they had a certain source of income that had been lasting them all the way back since the days of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. And that money, remember the immense plunder that they got in Egypt and with the uh, and in addition what they got at the Yamsuf with all that Hashem miraculously made uh, the Yam this, this, the Yamsuf itself um, spew out was all of the wealth the gold and the silver that the Egyptians were carrying the Jews were able to use that and sustain it and it's not coincidentally exactly in the days of Rehavam that, uh, that the money runs out from Egypt and what that signifies for us is that this is the end of the unity of Kalal Yisrael Egypt represented the peak of unity. We were slaves, we were slaves together. We left Mitzrayim together. At Harsinai we stood Ishachad, Belevachad, one man, one heart. And through all of this phase in history, we were at our greatest, at our greatest pinnacle when we were united, when the, when the unity runs out, as it were, the money runs out too, symbolically. Yes? Do you think it's because we went down to Egypt? I think you're making excellent connections as usual. And I think there's absolutely a connection, uh, you know, some, something to be said for that. Certainly the review. Remember we said that, that Shlomo also but set the yeah. seeds of destruction. Shlomo went back to Egypt. He married Basparo. He sent his men back to get the horses. There was the, the Egyptian um, faction, uh, the function, you know, the, the, that, 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 was a, that was a feature of the times. The last thing I want to talk about today, it's not, a, I mean, it'll, it'll take up the rest of our time, but it's, it's, it's a subunit in our discussion. And it's not a story of a king per se. I want to talk about this function, um, this, this institution that we call the prophetic institution, Nevi'im. Because it was unique in, in, in this time in history. It was such an elevated level and it's not well understood. And before we can understand anything in the next few hundred years, we got to know who these prophets were and what, their, what, was their, what, what role did they serve in Hashem's world. Now it's true. If you think about a Navi of Hashem, first thing comes to mind, what do you say? A prophet. He predicts the future, no? I don't know about you. I mean, okay, maybe not a fortune teller with so many crystal balls, but he knows the future. It's one of the qualities it, it, when we test if he's a Navi Sheker, one of the classic tests of a false prophet is to see, well, what do you predict? And let's see if it comes true. If it doesn't come true, then, you know, by definition, you're false. You're no good. So that's true. They predicted the future. But they did so much more, you know, to say that a Navi was a fortune teller was kind of like saying that the Mona Lisa is a really nice drawing. You kind of missed the point. Mona Lisa is slightly better than a nice drawing. Uh, and a Navi is slightly more than just a, a, a predictor of the future. They were, among many other features, role models. Um, there was an evil prophet, but only a non-Jewish prophet. And the last prophets, there were seven, the Gemara Baba Basra tells us there were seven non-Jewish prophets. Bilam, uh, Balak was also a prophet. Uh, the friends of Eov were also cited as being, as being, as being Naveen as well. Um, the, uh, they were evil. In fact, they were the moral antithesis of Moshe Rabbeinu. We'll talk about what the function, what, why, why, what, why did we have a Bilam and Navi. But 
Um, from that point on, the only Nevi'im and Nevi'os in the world are Jewish. And the Jewish Nevi'im, a prerequisite, you could not apply to Navi school. And then actually, I'm not just joking. There really was uh, what's called the yeshiva of the, of the Bnei Nevi'im, the, the children of the Nevi'im. You could not even get into the school unless you were of exemplary moral caliber. Only the best, the finest, the most humble, uh, the best midos could get in. So they had to be role models. So you actually could learn to become a prophet, not actually given to you. I don't know, no, no. You didn't, but if you were being nurtured for, for prophecy, you were a, a, a tzaddik, uh, not, no affectations, none of the, you know, what is your, like in the job interview with the guy, you know, what is your um, weakest quality? And the guy says, well, I'm really very humble. I think that's a problem for me. Not one of those guys. Like I was really the community. The, the minute the minute that you think of yourself as humble, usually that means that's a kind of arrogance, right? People who are the real article, the genuine article, they'd be groomed from the the nevuah, and the and the school was the place they were groomed. Yeah. Yeah, it worked a lot of meditation. I, I read something on it. I don't even know where it is. Okay, I, I I hesitate before using the word meditation because we have our associations today immediately put us in the in the ashram chaser shalom with a guru somewhere. You know, it's a bodhisattva. You know, so meditation has been has been kind of uh, that that notion has been sullied by the Eastern Eastern religions. Um, clearly, they were very deep. Clearly, they were close to Kadosh Baruch Hu. Uh, that's what we're describing right now. They were, though, first and foremost, tzaddikim who were fearless. They said the truth, and I'm going to give a couple examples of this, famous examples of this. They were moral compasses. They were, um, they told it like it was, um, kind of like a checks and balances. You know, people, I don't know if you ever had uh, civics. Some of you come from America, civics, so you'd say, oh, well, you got the president, you got the Supreme Court, you got the Congress. They were all checks and balances for one another. Well, our system had that better. Several notches better. You had God-fearing individuals who were unafraid to tell it like it was. And they were called Nevi'im, and, uh, and we are lacking in not having this anymore. And there's a very specific reason. Uh, one of the most important turning points in all of history. We're uh, a few weeks ahead of it, but stay tuned. <coughs> in a few weeks' time, I'm going to give one of the most important classes in history to talk about why and how we, lo we lost Nevi'ah and what the consequences are for us till today. When we had Nevi'ah, though, um, <coughs> we had uh, we knew what was right and wrong. They were part of the Masaira, meaning when we said that Moshe got the Torah, the written and the oral, he gave it to Yeshua, to this came to the Nevim, and we actually know the names of which prophets were direct lines. When I say the Masaira, it was handed over ish ish from one person to the other, all the way down. One one of the things Esther was had Nevuah, but she was not in the Masaira. Okay. Not every prophet was part of the Masorah, but one rule of thumb, one rule of thumb, Mordechai, um, by most accounts, was part of the Masorah. That's accurate. I, I really am neglect. I, I, Lee Netter, if you send me an email reminder, I have to get you the Rambam's list of the Masorah so you can actually see these names uh, for you. Thanks. Aaron's going to do it. Thank you very much, Aaron. Um, good. Uh, Lee Netter, that, that's something I owe you for tomorrow. Um, but one thing that's true is that almost every famous Navi who has a book in the Tanakh is part of the Masorah, with the exception of Yechezkel, Yonah, and, Ava and Avadya. Those three don't are not part are not uh, indicated as being part of the Masorah, and everybody else was. What about the, the twelve minor I'm including them. Uh, by the way, that's an English uh, translation, and it's a terrible translation. They weren't minor at all; they were very significant. But almost all of them, with the exception of Yonah and Avadya, who are included among those twelve. In fact, we're part of the um, part of the uh, nevuah. Micha and Nachum and Yoel and Chavakuk and Safani and the rest were all part of the Masorah. And these these uh, Yonah, Ovadia, and Yechezkel were not. Who was the one that gave the whole prediction about like all the everything's going to happen like, later on in the future? Yechezkel, Yechezkel, and we recently read him in the Haftarah. And he, he's not part of the Masorah. We'll, we'll learn a lot about him. He's one of the latter of all, one of the latest of all the prophets, significantly in the Babylonian period. Who is Ezra a prophet? Um, did Ezra have Nevoah? Um, probably, there's a Mahmokus in the Gemara and Megillah about Ezra's identity. It seems the accepted view is that Ezra is another name for Malachi, who's one of the Treasar. So if Ezra is indeed Malachi, one of the 12 prophets, um, then indeed certainly he had prophecy. Apparently, there was twice the number of, I said in the Gilad, uh, 
there, yeah, the Gemara Megillah says there were more, there were twice as many Nevi'im as there were common people. That's what you might. That left Egypt. That left, oh, they left Egypt. Oh, yeah, that's, that's right here. That's my next, that's my next statement. Right. And then they left Egypt. Meaning there were, because this was a time, it was in a sense, the time was ripe and conducive to being righteous. So that I said, I said, not everybody could be a Navi on the one hand. On the other hand, if we were alive, and in the air, the air was radiant with goodness and the knowledge of Hashem. And so a person who is a thinking, breathing, feeling neshama, his natural inclination was, well, I want to connect with my creator. And so it was not so far off to becoming a Navi. The Rambam, if you want to learn more in detail about the various facets of prophethood, uh, you'll learn this. I refer you to the second section of the Mor Nevuchim, of the Guide to the Perplex of the Rambam. There are three sections in the Guide to the Perplex. This is the middle one. He elaborates, he talks about the 11 levels of prophecy. Not every prophet was equal. The highest level, of course, was Moshe Rabbeinu, and, and on down, Yeshaya, and all the way down to the simpler levels of prophecy. And, and, and it was a correlation. The greater the man, or woman, as the case may be, um, the greater the level of prophecy. Say it again. Ruach HaKodesh is sub-prophecy. No, that's not the 11th level. Ruach HaKodesh is, is a lower level still, and it's not really prophecy either. What's the lowest level? What's that? What's the lowest? Uh, it's, uh, it's, I don't know if there's a name for it. It's, it Rambam delineates between, between all 11 of them. Um, I mentioned Bilam. I mean, we should be bothered a little bit. What was Bilam doing? If he was such a Russia, how did he have prophecy? In the first place, um, the way the Gemara Baba Basra explains it is that um, it was... The goyim who made the argument said, saying to Hashem, you know, if you'd never given us a chance to have a prophet, we would have been even better than Moshe Rabbeinu, to which Hashem demonstrated by giving them Bilam. Bilam, who's on par in terms of prophecy alone with Moshe, who nevertheless was a despicable human being and recognizably so. Even the goyim could see what a gross, foul individual Bilam would be, and therefore Hashem silenced them uh, in their in their argument. Wait, Rabbi, the argument still stands on, on the part of every other nation besides Jews, though. Because if they would have had a prophet who was both on Moshe's prophet level and uh, he had a, a, a Presumably, the Gemara, you have to look back in the Gemara. If you want to look it up, it's to, to take it to the next level, because I'm quoting it outside. But if you want to take it to the ne next level, it's the Gemara in Baba Basra Tesvav on the base. And there it says that this was the definitive, and they, see, they seem to accept this. Yeah, but Bilam could have had the, everyone got the opportunity to be good. And then Bilam could have just not. I think you're saying along the lines what Arya is saying. Bilam was the highest in this generation, though, too. Yeah. Yeah, but you're saying, but what? But but I'm not Bilam. I could have been better. Maybe they would argue. Okay, maybe so. Um, we said that the that the Navi was fearless. A couple of examples. Remember Noson? This is one we did together. Noson, who was the prophet when David was alive, and he sets up this whole parable with the rich man and the little lamb, and and he says, you know, the rich man steals the lamb from the poor man. What should we do with the rich man? And you remember the David's David's response? Kill him. And, and Nassim rebukes David and, and, and says, Ha'ish, you're the man, right? They, they're just fearless. And this is the king of, the, of, of Klal Yisrael, and they don't hesitate. Yeah, that's the whole episode of Bashev, exactly. Earlier, we saw Shmuel's approach to Shaul, and Shaul begged for clemency, and Shmuel was just unsparing with him. Uh, and soon enough, in, in coming up, coming around the corner, we're going to meet none other than Eliyahu Anavi himself. Eliyahu, who tells Ahab, and I just said this on the bus last week when we were on our way, we did a, we did a hike last week up in the north in the footsteps of Eliyahu Navi. Maybe, maybe, I don't think we know exactly where Eliyahu was, but we hiked through the Carmel Mountains, and, um, and, and I, I described this story, a very dramatic story after this, a, a drought to end all droughts, no water in the land, and finally Ahab finds Eliyahu, who's the cause of everything, and he says, Atahu Ocher Yisrael, you're the troublemaker of the Jewish people, and without missing a beat, Eliyahu says, Lo it wasn't me, buddy. Ki ata it was you in the house of your father, as we're about to see. The Gemara Megillah cites 
48 male prophets, 7 female prophets. Um, they're more prominent, even though that we know that there are millions, and as we said, twice the number of Yotzi Mitzrayim, uh, right, that, that uh, over a million, not millions, but over a million um, that existed. Um, but these 48 plus 7, 48 males, 7 females, were necessary for the generations. The Gemara explains they're singled out and given names. So some of those figures, and it's kind of the way I'm approaching history too. We're not learning about everybody everywhere. We can't possibly do that. But we are learning about the ones that you must know to be a card-carrying Jew. If you want to be knowledgeable, you have the names of the 48 in front of them. We're going to meet several of them in the coming weeks. Again, there are varying levels ranked by one to, from 11, 1 to 11. Uh, we said the yeshiva, the Bnei Hanavim. Um, there are a few rules that are understood. If you read a pasuk, and it doesn't say the city where the Navi comes from, we assume automatically he's from Yerushalayim. Most, many, many Navim came from the holy city. Um, another rule of thumb in Megillah, the Gemara Megillah, every Navi whose father's name is mentioned, his father was a Navi too. Um, it says, for example, Yeshaya ben Amotz, and Amotz therefore is understood to be a Navi. He may be actually Amatsia, another figure. Yoram ben Ami, Amitai, Amos is the most perplexing of this. I'm going to say a few words about Amos because Amos is, is cited in the name of his father, is cited, and Amos, the famous pasuk in, in, in Amos is, Lo Noviani, I'm neither prophet nor Ben Novi, nor a son of a prophet, and he was both. So that's a perplexing feature of Amos that I'm going to, maybe I'll, in, a, in a minute or so, I'll, I'll address a few more points on the prophets. Um, the Navim were regular people of the land who worked mostly menial tax tasks. They were shepherds, they were farmers and the like. Um, and that's an important statement. They understood the common per person. We think of sometimes spirituality as being in the hands, chas v'shalom, again, here's the Eastern religions for you. The guru sitting lotus style on the mountaintop, totally removed from the here and now. Our navim were people, salt of the earth, and, and, and immense because of it. And they could certainly relate to the common, common person. Uh, the navim have a lot of differences between them. They have different styles. And listen to this idea. Um, even though the content all came from Hashem, the way it was presented depended on the personality of the, of the Navi himself. So famously and classically, Yeshaya, the great Isaiah, is defined by Chazal as a Ben Krach. He's a city person. We would call him a metropolitan. And as such... If you look at it, the sixth chapter, famous sixth chapter of Isaiah, Yeshaya, in which he describes nothing less than the Kisya Kavod, the Maisim Rekavod, the Kaddish Baruch Hu, the, the most uh, um, awe-inspiring divine image, his description is very spare, because if you, anybody know, anybody grew up in the city, or your friends who grew up in the city, they've kind of, they're worldly and, sees, and, and have seen a lot of life, and their description tends to be very spare and elegant. Whereas, in contrast, Yechezkel, Hanavi is described as a Ben Kfar. He's maybe what we call a country bumpkin. Who he's imagined such a person coming to the big city for the first time in his life. Wow, Ma, there were these skyscrapers, and it was amazing, and there were people on the street selling all kinds of, you know, and he'd be, he'd be very rich and florid in the detail and the description. And indeed, Yechezkel, in describing the exact same image that Yeshaya describes in very brief words, Yechezkel's wordy and goes, goes to town with the same image, the same nevuah, channeled through a different Navi, comes out sounding very different. That's the first chapter that we read, of Yechezkel, that we Why? read. Anybody know when we read it? Very famous chapter. We read it on the morning of Mas and Torah, Chag Mas and Torah, on Shavuos morning when everybody's falling asleep. It's one of the most exciting parts of, the, of all of the Tanakh, and people are already like, uh, beyond themselves in fatigue, and, and you should pay attention then. Um, so that's, that's Yechezkel. We know that Yirmiyahu, um, well, I'll, I'll go backwards. We know that Yonah, anybody came to my Yonah class over Yom Kippur, Yonah was Tava Kavod Ben, Velo Kavod Av. He was very zealous on the honor of, of, of the Klal Yisrael at the expense of his honor, honoring Hashem. Eliyahu Navi, we're going to find, is the opposite. He was very zealous for Hashem's Kavod and not enough for the Jewish peoples. And the one Navi who got the balance, who, loved, who honored Hashem and honored the Jewish people was? Yirmiyahu Navi. Shmuel's great too, but you're Miawa Navi. Um, we, know, we know also the last point, I'm going to talk about almost now and then conclude. Um, generally, all of Klal Yisrael, North, Northern Kingdom and Southern Kingdom, revered the prophets. 
Uh, but the people of the North had less, slightly less honor. People in the South really heard it, and therefore there were more Nevi'im in the North because they needed to hear it. And we have the likes of Eliyahu and Elisha, and later on we're going to hear from Amos and Micha and others in the North. I want to focus just for a moment on Amos because uh, I want to. And I get to because this is my history class and it's not yours and I get to talk about things that I found particularly gishmak. While, while all this is happening in the, while all this is happening in the North, what's happening in the South? I know, we're not there yet. We're not there yet. I'm going to go back and forth. By the way, I haven't said very much about the actions. I, I haven't gone to this. I mean, I'm talking about Yeruvah. Rehavah, not much. He maintains, if there's not much common, it means not much of interest isn't going on. So in Rehavah's days, not much is going on. They stayed on their spiritual level. Yes. Even in the north, they mainly did, with these, with these well, glaring the flaws, with these glaring flaws. Um, so Amos is sometimes, he was also a favorite of the um, secular socialists, second Aliyah Israelis, who carried around the Tanakh in hand, because they, you know, everybody reads into what, what, what they want to see. So in this case, the secular socialists read into him. They said, oh yes, he's the socialist prophet, because he was all about so, what they claim was social justice. And indeed, he's, 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 he's fearless. Uh, he goes, a very famous passage in the fourth chapter of Amos, he says, Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, referring to the women, uh, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to their masters, bring me deep drink. He is, and, and it, it, it's rousing stuff, especially if they were Marxist. Think about the Marxists at the, at the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, all those uh, laborites who were reading the kami, the kamis who, who loved this stuff because they were all about, you know, the, the, the proletariat rising up and overthrowing the corrupt aristocracy. That's what Amos is talking about to some degree. Um, he says, Woe to those who are complacent down in Sion and those who are overly secure uh, in the mountain of, of Shomron. Um, what is the last point? He says, I'm neither prophet nor son of a prophet when Chazal say he's both. So here's a, here's, here's a shot that I think is very powerful about Amos. What he's saying in his critique of the, of the social fabric of life, if we can't learn to live together and to play nicely in the sandbox together in this world, which you recognize in the Torah as a major element, somebody loses an object, return it. If we can't treat our poor with dignity, if we can't possibly treat one another with cover, with, with, with respect, then we're not doing our fundamental task as human beings. Almost emphasizes these qualities. And perhaps one thing he could be saying is, not that I'm not the pro not that I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet, but I don't need to be a prophet, nor do I need to be a son of a prophet to recognize glaring injustices that are taking place far and deep in the land that any five-year-old child can rise up. And this is a nice bookend to this class because the things that are the elephants in the room, the emperor's new clothes, the things that are glaringly wrong in the world, you should recognize, you should recognize that if somebody doesn't have, that a poor man doesn't have shoes to put on his feet, the rich people should not be basking in luxury. Even we recognize that we're not on the same level. Right, right, right. So, so, so spoke Amos, and I refer you to all of, I know we're at cake break. I, I know I can't say that, I'm, I'm just done. I refer you to all of the great Naveen who teach this and many, many other, other lessons that are really lessons for the Doros, not just for their times. Tomorrow, uh, we're going to talk about the rise of Avodah Zarah in the north.